Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that salaries for new hires are, quote, shriveling, adding that the worker bidding war is over. Now, for those on the lookout for a new job, we're breaking down the numbers showing pay for new hires is going down. Before, employers struggled to fill open spots as many of the many results of the pandemic. But that is starting to change. Just six weeks ago, that same Wall Street Journal, along with the rest of Main Street media, was warning that wageflation is upon us, with greedy workers condemning us to hyperinflation despite the best attempts of the Fed. So here we are, wage-driven hyperinflation to shriveling in six weeks flat. So what is driving the shrivel? The journal noted that after years of job hoppers getting fat raises thanks to pandemic-era labor shortages also known as millions of people paid to chill on the couch, taxpayer expense. Now companies are dropping pay for new hires, with the majority of job titles down on the year, in some cases by double digits. Note, inflation has continued, so that compounds to quite a pay cut. The worst plunges have been in IT, engineering, and transportation, which are all down around 20%. Business and manufacturing are both down around 10 the journal profiled one IT design worker who, quote, applied for more than 2,000 roles and only got a couple interviews, despite accepting salaries down 10,000 since last year. Another pizza delivery driver feels guilty that she's making 13 an hour when new hires are only getting 11. By the way, these sectors that are still rising are education and healthcare, which are both government dominated, basically continuing a 50 year trend where the government grows, but the people shrivel. I mentioned in previous videos how the wage gains of the past year, which were barely beating inflation to begin with, were simply workers catching up, finally getting some trickle down from the Fed's trillions. This is because the way the Fed prints money is that they type in an Excel sheet, and then they use that to buy assets like government bonds, mortgage-backed securities, and even corporate equities last time around. That means the money goes first to anybody who owns those assets, and it goes to borrowers, the federal government above all, and only after a long lag does it finally drip down to workers. Alas, it turns out those workers never quite catch up. Last time in the 1970s, workers got a permanent hit of about 8% of income. The trend shifted down. During Biden, it's already been close to 8%. We're only two years in. So what is next? 20% drops in salary offers could mean that workers trickle down, maybe drying up, shriveling, if you will, ending before it really even got started. If so, it means we may be entering the early stages of the recession unemployment dance, where companies first reduce offering pay, then they reduce hiring, then they reduce working hours, and finally come the layoffs. For the first time in 13 years, the China-led BRICS group of anti-dollar countries admitted new members, bringing in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, UAE, Iran, Argentina, and Ethiopia. So now it is the BRICS-Saudi. The BRICS group of nations has announced it will expand its membership as its five current members hope to boost their global influence. The new members will formally join on January 1st with host South African President Ramaphosa promising more countries to come. In fact, about 40 
are trying to join. The new crop brings BRICS to 46% of the world's population. The six new members contain 400 million souls, about as many as the entirety of South America. And the new BRICS will be between 30 and 40% of world GDP. That's 30 in dollar terms and then 40 adjusting for local prices, which makes it bigger than the G7 who runs the world. Moreover, it gives BRICS 25% of world exports, 43% of world oil production, and similar dominance of raw materials since green activists in the West are busy deindustrializing and returning us to the Stone Age. So why are 40 countries banging down the door to join BRICS? Two reasons, free Chinese money and American weaponization of the dollar. The free money comes from the BRICS Development Bank, along with subsidized loans from China. The other day, Bolivia's president, gave a speech openly saying he wants to join BRICS in order to get access to the development bank, adding, quote, the world is dividing into two blocks of which one is in decline, which is the magic words if you're looking for a lot of Chinese money. Indeed, in the past few days, Iran awarded a 2.7 billion airport project to Chinese contractors, while China bid on a nuclear plant in Saudi Arabia. Given Saudi has a lot of energy resources, there could be interesting motives to having nuclear energy, but China is happy to do business. The other reason countries are hot for BRICS, of course, is the U.S. government's weaponization of the dollar, especially seizing Russia's central bank assets, which told the rest of the world that dollars are a very dangerous thing to own. So what is next? I've mentioned the most important aspect of BRICS would be a gold-backed rail to replace the U.S. dollar. There was no movement on this, with BRICS countries continuing to squabble. India and Russia in particular don't want each other's crappy money. Still, inter-BRICS use is growing and will erode the dollar at the fringes, especially with longtime U.S.-dependent Saudi Arabia now putting a foot in the anti-dollar camp calling into question whether the 50-year petrodollar arrangement, where the U.S. guards Saudi in return for them parking their money in the dollar, is still in effect. In fact, with China recently brokering a peace deal between Arab countries and Iran, Saudi may have decided it no longer needs the U.S. security umbrella, which would be great news for the American taxpayer milked for the empire, but it also takes out one more prop on the dollar. BRICS driver China is going through a very rough patch in the moment. I've done a couple of videos on that. And in the near term, slimmer Chinese handouts will dampen some of that enthusiasm about declining world blocks. But in the long run, China doesn't have to be perfect. They just have to be less suicidal than US and European elites, which is proving a very easy bar to clear. Last week, the Wall Street Journal wrote that, quote, China's 40-year boom is over, with the rest of American media following suit. China's yuan is at a 16-year low, and the country appears to be experiencing deflation. Economists say these are signs China could be facing an extended economic downturn. So where did China go wrong? I've done a couple recent videos on China's stalling economy with manufacturing in the trillion-dollar home-building industries crashing, as well as on the Chinese government's panicked response, from ordering banks to buy stocks, or to buy the Chinese yuan, to going dark on sensitive statistics like youth unemployment. Put it together, and China was 77% 
of US GDP just a couple of years ago. Now it is headed to 68%. So what's causing it in short is crony and incompetent government that routed trillions to politically favored industries and state-owned enterprises, which are as badly run in China as they are everywhere, while suppressing the very entrepreneurs and markets that brought China out of the gutter these past 40 years. The New York Times describes it as using regulation as a, quote, cudgel, clamping down especially on internet companies or financials like Alibaba and Ant, whose billionaire founders were seen as challenging the Communist Party's authority. Now, for the first time since the 2008 crisis, regular Chinese are losing confidence that their government has a handle on things. Because the deal in China for the past 40 years has been that the government can do whatever it likes so long as regular Chinese are getting richer. So the regime can lock up dissidents, it can run a corrupt treadmill linking the Communist Party, big business, and military-owned ventures, including, by the way, what the South China Morning Post terms the, quote, number one nightclub in Beijing because of its beautiful hostesses and high prices. They can do all this so long as the economy keeps growing gangbusters, so long as jobs are plentiful, incomes are rising, and Chinese parents can look forward to raising prosperous kids. Now that deal, that economic mandate of heaven, is in doubt. I mentioned in recent videos how growth under President Xi has barely cleared 5%, which is rather average for a developing country and is deeply disappointing to Chinese who have gotten used to decades of miracle growth. Then came the ham-handed COVID flip-flop, where hundreds of millions of Chinese were locked up like rats, lined up every morning for a daily COVID test or hauled off to mass camps. Then, in the face of public complaints, the government declared victory out of the blue, instantly flipping from mass internment to pretending it never happened. That clarified for many Chinese that Beijing does not know what it is doing and that it is failing to know what it's doing in a very clumsy, indeed a very dangerous way. So what is next? If the Chinese people lose faith in their government, they will keep cutting spending and investment, which shrinks the economy even more. China's labor force is already shrinking. The private enterprise is pulling back while foreign investment dries up. China is trying to stimulate, but that risks devaluation, a weaker currency, which could drive massive capital flight overseas, while any stimulus piles yet more debt on top of China's $50 trillion mountain. So they are backed into a corner. Meanwhile, China's youth unemployment hits record highs, piling up political tinder for the blundering but hyper-aggressive President Xi to pour gasoline onto. We got two fresh job reports out this week, both saying the American labor market is dropping like a rock. Bills are dropping, and why are they dropping? Because Joel's disappointed, expecting a number around nine and a half million 8,827,000. That is the smallest jolts, job openings, since March of 2021. It was so bad, in fact, that Bloomberg headlined their article, quote, good news for the Fed as job market cools. Not a joke. First up, job openings. They dropped by a massive 750,000 on the month, which was a comical sevenfold miss to Wall Street expectations. That's the third biggest miss on record. And it brings the three-month drop in job openings to 1.5 million lost. That is the worst on record outside the COVID lockdowns. As always, they revised the previous month's numbers down. 
By the way, they've revised literally every report this year, which is fun because it sneaks some extra juice when nobody in the media is looking. And they can always revise since 70% of their data is estimated. So they're not actually counting. They are using statistical pixie dust. July hires also plunged, though not as bad as openings, with hires down a couple hundred thousand on the month, making for a drop of 458,000 hires over the past two months. That is the biggest drop in hires since COVID and knocks hires below the pre-pandemic number. In other words, we have now canceled out the entire COVID labor shortage in terms of hires. Finally, job quits, which also plunged by a quarter million, meaning people are getting nervous about finding another job, so they are sticking with the crummy job they have. That's a classic canary in the job market coal mine, and separate data from the conference board also found that Americans are less optimistic about finding a job, so people are worried. So, jolts was a mess. Now, days later, we get confirmation and fresh payroll numbers showing a nearly 10% drop from the previous month, which is pretty big for a month. I mentioned the other day how the job data is showing early warning signs. Starting offers are crashing, and now openings, hires, and quits are all crumbling. Jobs are usually a lagging indicator in a recession, meaning they don't start to get bad until the recession is well underway. And the reason is companies try to hoard workers as long as possible because it is very expensive and hard work to find them. It actually costs about 30% of annual salary to find a worker, and it can take months to get them up to speed, during which they do lousy work. So companies only cut as a last resort. Now, this is especially true after the traumatic labor shortages of 2021 that had small business CEOs spending their weekends on the assembly line. So it is very odd to see this kind of damage this early. It could be innocent normalization of an artificially tight post-COVID labor market, but 750000 in a month is pretty big. So what is next? The job carnage is warming the Fed's cockles. It's good news, if you will, because the Fed hopes workers take one for the team, that they lose their job or cut their wages to clean up the inflation that Jerome Powell dumped on America's living room carpet. So pain for workers is gain for the Fed which is a pretty unpleasant way to make a living, but welcome to central banking. The Wall Street Journal reported that millions of Americans are now going without home insurance amid soaring prices and that they are just praying for the best. Going naked in the industry lingo, which sounds fun, but it is not. The problem is most dramatic in California and especially Florida. California policies are now soaring by double digits, while the average new policy in Florida now costs $7,800 per year. In fact, some insurers are simply pulling out. In the past year, State Farm and Allstate both exited California home insurance altogether while farmers capped policies. They are leaving because they would have to hike rates by up to 40%, that's what Allstate requested, to make ends meet given soaring construction costs and government-fed wildfires. Farmers also pulled out of Florida where the problems are different. In that case, insurers are getting wrecked by frivolous lawsuits that are spreading like wildfire, thanks to decades of trial lawyer lobbying. In fact, Florida makes up 80% of all property insurance lawsuits in the nation, 
with one-tenth of the nation's population. While the rest of the country doesn't have quite the government California has, or quite the lawyers Florida has, nationwide insurance costs are up 20% since last year. They're now close to $1,800 on the median house. In response, literally millions of Americans are now dropping out altogether, going without insurance coverage and hoping for the best. 12% of American homeowners now go without insurance. That represents about 17 million homes. A few of them are rich and can rebuild out of pocket, but about half of them, so 8 million, are people making under $40,000 who simply don't have the money. The Wall Street Journal interviewed one retiree in Los Angeles who said, worst case, he'll just rent for the rest of his life. Good luck with that in LA. Keep in mind, when you lose your house, you don't just lose the house, you lose everything you own. Plus, you're on the hook for clearing the debris, which can cost tens of thousands, a lot more somewhere like LA. A lot of homeowners will just walk away from the wreckage, like thousands already have in Detroit or Baltimore. In a couple recent videos, I've talked about the housing affordability crisis locking out young families and millennials. Mortgage lenders typically build insurance into the income requirements, and incomes are low for the young to begin with. So this means one more barrier on top of the 7.5% mortgages and the nationwide shortage of houses, since sellers are locked into 3% mortgages and can't afford 7.5, so they can't afford to sell. In insurance, as in much else, we are splitting into a three-tier economy. You've got the poor, who live on the edge of catastrophe, the middle class, who is running on a treadmill, dodging increasingly ridiculous monthly bills, and you've got the rich, who don't really care. They have reached financial escape velocity. What happened the last time America ended the Fed? Since our founding, America has had a total of four central banks. We shut three down, one to go. The last time was Andrew Jackson closing the second bank in the United States in 1836, and it gives us a roadmap for how to end our Fed. The second bank had been set up in 1816, and like all central banks, its purpose was to counterfeit money in return for financing government debt. This is great for governments who get cheap money. It's great for bankers who could do print money, but it does have the unfortunate side effect of setting off a boom-bust cycle of first inflation, then depression, then bailout. In fact, the second bank managed this over and over, each time pissing off voters more and more. Of course, the bank had bought a lot of friends in Congress. Money printers do that. So it took the firebrand Andrew Jackson, the Donald Trump of his day, to make it finally happen. First, Jackson drained government deposits out of the bank. The second bank retaliated, though, by calling in loans nationwide, trying to spark a depression that would be blamed on Jackson. It backfired, the public was enraged, and even Congress could not save the central bank. It was closed. So what happened next? Jackson ramped up land sales to pay off the national debt for the first and only time in U.S. history. Regional wildcat banks pumped out fractional reserve money, driving a land frenzy. And to end that, Jackson required land payment in gold and silver. That finally broke the inflationist. The end of cheap money drove almost half of America's banks out of business, about 400 in all. The vast majority were those new wildcat banks, but even the New York 
major banks stopped redeeming dollars and gold, effectively declaring bankruptcy. We now had all the pieces for a return to sound money in America. The second bank was dead. The gambler banks had been purged. The national debt was even paid off. If at that point the government had done nothing, we would finally have a sound banking system, sound dollar, and an end to the boom-bust cycles. Unfortunately, by that point, Andrew Jackson was out of office. The cronies were back, and President Van Buren allowed failed banks to keep operating without redeeming the 1800s version of a bank bailout. That continued for another 40 years, boom-bust after boom-bust, punctuated by Lincoln's hyperinflation. Now, proponents of hard money did have one big win, putting the country back on a gold standard in 1879, which ushered in the greatest golden age in U.S. history. Alas, that ended in 1907 when a conspiracy of New York bankers failed to corner copper and collapsed. They were bailed out by the nation's ruling oligarch, J.P. Morgan, who decided he would like the taxpayers to do it next time. And so was born the Federal Reserve, that creature of Jekyll Island, the inflation and bailout machine brought back to life. The biggest lesson of the second bank is that we can absolutely end the Fed. It's been done three times and counting, but it will only happen if regular people understand what the Fed does, that inflation, recessions, even bank crashes are not normal economic phenomena. They're not animal spirits. They're not greedy workers. They are the product of the Fed. They are what it does for a living. Time to check in on Europe, where anger is building while politicians scapegoat. In a reprisal of Europe's traditional role, playing canary to America's coal mine, showing us what not to do, which we then proceed to do. Several countries in Europe are seeing civil unrest as swarms of people have been taking to the streets to protest their respective governments' handling of inflation as prices continue to soar there. We had two interesting speeches this week, one from a senior UK Treasury advisor, the other from European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde. First up, the Brit. In a tacky little speech, senior UK Treasury advisor Karen Ward, one of the most important Karens in Britain, lamented that the UK is headed for a recession because British workers have too much leverage, so their wages are too high. Not a joke. She pines for the days of the EU when they could just import millions of overseas workers and hold down wages. Today, tragically for Karen, British workers just get paid too much. Bottom line, your wages are the problem, the economic equivalent of a carbon footprint. Keep in mind, wages in the UK have actually lagged inflation by a quarter in the past two years, are now 3% short, that's about 1,000 quid per year. So UK workers are not even keeping up as it is, but that's still too much for Karen, who would like workers to take a fall so they can cancel out the inflation that the government printed up. By the way, she also endorsed a higher target for inflation, presumably 3%. I've mentioned how that campaign is in full swing here in the States as well, since central bankers would love to steal more from you in Britain as here at home. Who says they don't care about you? I've mentioned in recent videos how central bankers who create inflation for a living blame that inflation on everything under the sun, especially greedy workers. Well, sometimes they blame nothing, as when ECB head Lagarde herself recently said that inflation, quote, pretty much came out of nowhere. So trillions of money printing and pow, inflation out of the blue. But most of the time, they do put names on their scapegoats, and their favorites are greedy workers or, depending who's in power, greedy businesses. A few months ago, that same ECB put out a tweet asking who's to blame for inflation. Is it greedy workers or greedy companies, as in the left-wingers or the right-wingers, and go fight each other? In reality, inflation is, as Milton Friedman put it, always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, meaning central bankers, given they're the only ones who are supposed to print money— 
You can try that at home. Governments can make it worse, of course, by strangling production or taxing workers. But inflation isn't some natural disaster, some ghost that emerges from the machine or some worker conspiracy. It is simply too much money chasing too few goods. So what is next? Both the UK and the EU are headed for recession for the same reason we are. Panic hikes to cover up the inflation they dumped. The silver lining is that European governments are doing so badly that anger is building fast. The water is boiling and the frogs could jump sooner. Combine that with Europe's multi-party systems and flexible election calendars, and we can actually see populist parties start to gain power in Europe. Europe even sooner than in the U.S., at which point they will act as a beacon or a lighthouse for rising millions of Europeans who are becoming increasingly frustrated, hopeless, and angry. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.